Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Cathy Weiss and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR at 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Karen Green from the University of Melbourne. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Etiquette is what you are doing and saying when people are looking and listening. What you are thinking is your business. Virginia Carey Hudson. 1962. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. I'm speaking to Dr. Eleanor Mason about her recent study on blameworthiness. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. I have been studying philosophy and working on philosophy and teaching philosophy, what seems like pretty much my whole life which is to say I did an undergraduate degree in philosophy. That's the only thing I studied. I sometimes feel like it would have been good to study some other things. And then I did a PhD at Reading, and then I went straight into professional philosophy. So my first job was at Arizona State University in America, and from there I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and then I came to Edinburgh University, where I've been for... 13 years now with a couple of uh, breaks, a bit of time off for good behavior. And during that time, I've been working on ethics broadly, but my interests have broadened out quite a bit. So I started working on normative ethics, that is to say, thinking about what kind of shape ethical theories have, what kind of things are reasons. And I've got interested in moral responsibility recently and the connections between moral responsibility and ethics, and that's what I'm here to talk about. That's my recent big project, which is a book that I've just completed. But I also have interests in feminist philosophy, and I've been working on that over the last few years, too. And my next project, um, now that I'm completing and winding up this work on blameworthiness, will be on feminist philosophy. What was it that inspired you to study blameworthiness? Well, when I was thinking about questions in ethics, I got very interested in questions about what kinds of things can be right or wrong, not so much in the sense of whether it's to do with consequences or rules. So that's a very traditional dispute in ethics between consequentialism and deontology. But rather in what kind of things we can think are right or wrong in relation to how responsible people could be for them. So this is the debate between objective and subjective accounts of right and wrong action. So roughly, an objective account of right action defines right action in a way that's independent of the agents in 
motives, knowledge of the world, independent of what the agent thinks they're doing. And subjective rightness and wrongness are much more centered on the agent, on the agent's own point of view. And so it's an interesting question which way we should go and what kind of considerations there are. And obviously they're connected with moral responsibility. So then I started thinking about moral responsibility. And what I found is interesting is that in ethics, people tend to talk about moral responsibility as if that's a pretty clear thing and the really hard questions are about what right and wrong action are. And of course you get the opposite thing. People who are writing about moral responsibility and free will think that's the hard question, what moral responsibility is, what blame and praiseworthiness are. And that the question of right and wrong action is if they can take that for granted, that's not so difficult. So I got interested in looking at both of them simultaneously because it seems to me that the concepts of right and wrong action build in ideas about responsibility. And ideas about responsibility, at least ideas about praise and blameworthiness, build in ideas about right and wrong action. So the project that I've just been working on is to try and get an account of those sort of central concepts and how they work. Would you have a definition of blameworthiness? Well, not exactly. So blameworthiness and blame, which are kind of connected concepts, are really difficult to to get to grips with. But the basic idea is that first there's some condition of agency. So that's responsibility more basically. And I'm not worrying about that too much. And what I'm assuming is that in the background, there is some compatibilist story. So that is to say there's a story that doesn't assume that we have metaphysical free will, but that that rather is compatible with a kind of naturalistic, deterministic, or mechanistic world. So we can give a general account of the way in which we're responsible, that we are agents. And then the question is, well, what would make us praise or blameworthy? And it seems like that's got to, to do, that's got to have something to do with the way that we're motivated towards right and wrong action. What I end up saying is that there are different ways to be blameworthy. So there are different things that we do that merit blame. Now, when I say merit blame, I don't mean to be appealing to any fundamental or basic notion of desert. So one natural thought that you might have is that to be blameworthy is to deserve blame. And... I'm happy with that so long as we don't interpret it as carrying too much metaphysical baggage. So what I end up saying is that the primary way to be blameworthy is to know that you ought to try to do well by morality and not to try. So to feel that you should try but not to try. So this kind of ordinary blameworthiness applies only to people who have a good grasp of morality. And I take for granted that we can just talk about a commonsensical morality that we all know is right, so there's some 
meta-ethical commitment there, but again, not a very ambitious one. I take for granted that it's possible to have a grasp of morality in this sense. And so to be blameworthy is to fail to try, to know that you ought to try and to not try. So what would your definition of blame be? And what's the difference between blame and blameworthiness? Yeah, that's a very good question. So it's quite hard to say what blame is too, of course. And I think it's it's useful to think in terms of a threefold distinction. So we've got judging blameworthy, which is just to think that someone has done the thing that would make them blameworthy. So on my account, that means that they haven't tried to do well by morality. But to judge blameworthy isn't necessarily to blame. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got punishing. So punishing is actually doing some action that you think is warranted in the situation in response to somebody not behaving as you wanted them to. But of course, punishing isn't the same as blaming. So we've got three things. We've got judging blameworthy, we've got blaming, and we've got punishing. And we want blaming to be distinct, both from judging blameworthy and from punishing. So beyond that, I don't think there's one definition. What I think, rather, is that there are different kinds of blame. So there are different things that fit into that logical space between judging blameworthy and punishing that count as blame in a, in a broad sense, but they're not unified by both fitting into the same definition. So I think that there's ordinary blame, which applies to agents who are ordinary blameworthy, so agents who understand morality, they're in our moral community, they know they ought to try to do well by morality, but they fail to try. And there's lots of ways that agents can, there's lots of, there are lots of reasons that agents can fail to try. So they could just not care, they, they're not bothered at all, and I think that's what we think of as being very bad people. Usually, though, you just get distracted by other things, distracted by more selfish concerns. And in that case, I think those people are blameworthy in the ordinary way. And as I say, it's essential in my view that these people are part of our moral community. They understand that they ought to have done better. And I think ordinary blame is perfectly matched to that kind of blameworthiness, and it's communicative. So I think blaming someone in the ordinary way is communicating with them. It's wanting them to respond in a certain way, to hear and understand what we're saying, which is you've acted wrongly by our shared standards. And you want a kind of response from the person you're blaming, which is acceptance of the blame, which explicitly or more likely implicitly is a way of saying, yes, I see, I did that, I should not have done that. And we move through a kind of sequence of acceptance of blame apology, reparation, forgiveness, and so on. And not every time. We don't have to go through the whole sequence every time. But that's how blame works. So it isn't punishment, and it's more than just judging blameworthy. 
I do also think, though, that there is another kind of blame that applies to people who are outside of our moral community, so people who act wrongly in an objective sense without really knowing what they're doing because they don't grasp morality, perhaps they can't grasp morality, or perhaps they just don't. Perhaps they're just outside of our community for very contingent reasons. And in that case, clearly communicative blame doesn't make sense we wouldn't get the right kind of uptake, and the right kind of uptake isn't possible because they lack a grasp of morality. And I think that we still do blame people who act badly in that kind of situation, but we blame them in a very different way. And I think there's just another thing here that's distinct from judging blameworthy and distinct from punishing. It's neither of those things. And so on this fairly loose account of blame, the second kind of blame that I'm talking about counts as blame. But as I say, it isn't communicative. It's much more of an, a reactive attitude. So Peter Strawson introduced this idea that what's essential in our responsibility responses is our, our attitudes, and we have these reactive attitudes, and he talks about resentment. So I think that there are reactive attitudes that are not really communicative, but they're attitudes that we have to agents. So the way that we feel towards an agent who behaves badly is very differently than... It's very, the way that we feel towards an agent who behaves badly is very different to the way that we feel if our car breaks down or if a raccoon breaks in and turns our garbage upside down. When we think we're dealing with something that's an agent, we have reactions like contempt, for example, or disdain, they don't demand a response. So Stephen Darwell has a useful way of putting this. He, like me, thinks that blame is communicative. He thinks it demands an RSVP. I think that that's in the case of what I call detached blame, the second kind of blame. I don't think that there's a demand for an RSVP, but I still think it's a kind of blame. I think it's a kind of reactive attitude. I think it applies particularly to agents. I think it can involve changed relationships with the agent and so on. Could you give some examples of objective standards for wrong and right actions? Yeah, so when I'm talking about actions that are right and wrong objectively, the idea is that we use whatever standards we think are applicable, and they apply regardless of the agent's point of view. So here's an analogy, first of all. Um, imagine that you go up to the roller coaster, and there's a height restriction on the roller coaster. So there's just an objective standard, and whether or not you meet that standard has nothing to do with your intentions or motivations or point of view or knowledge of the world. It's just there's the standard, and it applies objectively. So you might think that morality is like that, and I think that there is a perfectly coherent sense of right and wrong action, which is like that. Now, you don't want it to be too objective, because then it's not interesting to us. It's coherent, but it's not interesting. So if you say the right action to do is the one that is actually best, given everything that's actually true and would be possible for an agent much more powerful than you. 
that's not very interesting. You know, that might involve flying or teletransporting or something. So it's coherent to define right action hyper-objectively like that, but nobody actually does it. What people do do quite often is give an account of hyper-objectivism that applies to agents like us but assumes that we have perfect knowledge. So they say that the right thing to do is the action that would actually be best for an agent like you in the circumstances. So Frank Jackson has a very famous example where a doctor has a choice between two drugs to give a patient. And one drug has a 50% chance of killing the patient and a 50% chance of curing the patient. And the other drug doesn't have anything very severe and a bad side effect, but it doesn't have a great potentially good outcome either. It's just going to ameliorate the symptoms. So the question is, which drug should the doctor give? For an objectivist, the right answer depends on what actually will happen. So let's say that the risky drug, the first drug, would actually cure the patient and not kill her. Then the objectivist says that's the right action. It's the objectively right action. But of course, that isn't something that the doctor can know. So a more moderate view, perspectivism, says the right action is the one that it would make sense for the doctor to do, given limited knowledge. So in this case, the doctor ought to give the drug that will ameliorate the symptoms. He ought not to take the risk of killing the patient. There's a 50-50 chance of killing the patient. And that remains true, even if subsequently the doctor finds out that the risky drug would actually have cured the patient. So the perspectivist says, look, you look back and maybe in retrospect you see that it would have been fine. You still did the right thing in not prescribing the drug. So I think that it's still useful to talk about objectively right action, but I think that it gets conflated a little bit with bestness. So it's interesting to look back and see what would actually have been best, and if you want to, you can put that in terms of what actually would have been objectively right. It's a verbal dispute there. It doesn't really matter. I think that prospectivism is very important and probably the central or the primary sense of rightness. And the philosopher Michael Zimmerman spends a lot of time defending prospectivism. I think he's right that it's a very important sense of rightness. But prospectivism is also a pretty objective sense of rightness. So what it would be reasonable to do, given reasonable ignorance in a situation, isn't necessarily what an actual agent's point of view is. It's, that's not necessarily accessible to any particular actual agent. It seems as though there's a, there's a third possible sense of rightness here, which is subjective rightness. And what's interesting to me about subjective rightness is that it seems like it's going to correspond with praise and blameworthiness. So let me explain that. Subjective rightness is the kind of rightness that does correlate with the agent's own point of view. So when an agent is acting subjectively rightly, there isn't room for any kind of luck or random interference. If she's acting subjectively rightly, she's doing what's right by her light. So it seems that she's going to be praiseworthy. Whereas, to contrast the objective senses of, of rightness and wrongness, 
you could do, on the objective account of wrongness, you could do what's objectively wrong, but you had no idea it was objectively wrong. So how could you possibly be blameworthy for that? You can prescribe the safe drug, and in some sense that's what you ought to do. It's what you ought to do prospectively, and it's also what you ought to do subjectively. But you've done something objectively wrong in the case where the drug would actually have cured the patient. But you wouldn't be blameworthy for doing anything objectively wrong. It's a little bit more complex, but there will be cases of prospective wrongness that you're not blameworthy for, simply because you're not as reasonable as the standard for prospectivism requires. Prospectivism says you do what's reasonable in circumstances, but reasonableness isn't necessarily an accessible standard. So subjective rightness ties rightness to the agent's own point of view, and because of that, it should correspond with praiseworthiness. And that's what I argue in my book. I argue that there's a really important sense of praiseworthiness, and it's ordinary praiseworthiness. So subjective rightness corresponds to ordinary praise and blameworthiness. Acting subjectively rightly, on my view, is trying to do well by morality. What do you think the relationship is between praise and blameworthiness? That's a very interesting question. So a lot of people think that praise or praiseworthiness and blame and blameworthiness are quite different, that they come apart. So I think one reason that people think that they're quite different is that as soon as you do something wrong, you seem to be blameworthy. So even a tiny little wrong thing makes you blameworthy. But rightness doesn't seem to to act that way. So I take my kids to school in the morning. That's just what I have to do. It's the right thing to do. But I don't seem particularly praiseworthy for that. So it seems that praise is harder to earn. So I think that's really down to our ideas about when it's appropriate to praise people, not so much about when they're praiseworthy. So I do think that praise and blameworthiness and praise and blame are pretty much symmetrical. And so I don't think that that's a, a huge problem. And in the, the central case, the case of ordinary praise and ordinary blame, I think that ordinary praise is just like ordinary blame in being communicative. So just as, as I said earlier, when we blame someone, what we're doing is saying to them, hey, look, by our shared standards, you've acted badly, you didn't try hard enough, and we want the person to respond, yeah, you're right, I didn't try hard enough by our shared standards. I think praise is like that too. But when I say to someone, hey, that's great, you did really well, I'm saying, you tried really hard by our shared standards, and I want you to accept and acknowledge that, and that the person in accepting praise says, yeah, you're right. I'm pleased with myself. I tried really hard by our shared standards. I'm glad you noticed. I think that there are complications in praise socially. So I think particularly the British are quite reluctant to openly praise. So we don't always make explicit this kind of praise exchange. We keep it very low-key, but it's still there. And the idea that praise is communicative in this way makes sense of ways in which praise can misfire. So sometimes you praise people for things where 
it's not really something they've done. So praising people for being cute or beautiful, for example, there's something awkward about that. And this account can explain why that's awkward. It's because in being beautiful, for example, that's just good luck. That isn't something that you've tried to do by shared standards. It's something that you're just perceived to be. And so praise there is inappropriate. It doesn't quite work. So I think that that makes sense of that, that we praise people for trying hard. And I think that uh, this kind of view can also make sense of why it seems like praise isn't easy to earn. There's a lot of things that we do that are right action, which we don't have to try very hard to do. So we just put in a small amount of effort. So a great deal of praise isn't appropriate. We praise people more the harder they try. And in the case of blame, uh, we blame people more the less hard they've tried. So they're mitigating circumstances that if it was very hard for someone to try, for example, because they're depressed, then we might still blame them a little bit, but they're mitigating circumstances. We think that the amount of effort they would have had to put in to do well is much greater than usual. Nonetheless, I think we still do blame them a little bit because they didn't try as hard as they could, perhaps. With the example of the doctor, if if the doctor just told the patient all of the options and explained that one medication could cure them, but then there's a 50% chance it could kill them and the patient decides to go down that path anyway, do you think that people or the, the doctor, for example, could take away any chance of anybody being able to blame them for their actions? So that's an interesting question. I think it takes us into a slightly different kind of territory, which is the question of how much responsibility we have for other people and their decisions. And I think we do have some. And I think that how much we have depends on our position. So as a parent, we have responsibility to our kids. We can't just say to our kids, well, you make a decision, but when are you going to go to school today? We decide for them. We make sure they go. And if you're a doctor, I think you have a slightly parental relationship to your patients, which is that sometimes it's appropriate just to give them a choice and let them make their own decisions. But not always. It might be that doctors should sometimes be a little bit paternalistic. And so I think we can be blameworthy sometimes for delegating choices to other people in cases where we ought to be being more paternalistic towards them. Another point worth making briefly about that example is that, of course, Jackson means us to abstract away from the particular case. And and you're right that in the particular case, there's a complication about the patient might want to make their own choice. But we could think of other examples that didn't have that feature, where you just have uncertainty in the world. Should I choose this policy that may be great for the environment or, or maybe terrible, or should I choose this policy that will have an okay effect on the environment and certainly won't do anything dreadful? So that kind of case gives us a case with the same structure, but it doesn't bring in the complexity of there being another agent. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks very much for having me.
And I've been speaking to Dr. Eleanor Mason about blameworthiness. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. 